0: Hello and welcome to episode 119 of the Thinking LSAP podcast. This is Ben Olson in Washington, D.C. and Nathan Fox in L.A.
1: Yeah, I'm in L.A. I was just in uh, Pacific Grove, like Carmel area over the last couple of days with my dad and a bunch of his buddies on a little uh, golf trip, but I drove back last night. So, yep, Los Angeles.
0: Cool. Yeah. And um, you went golfing?
1: Yeah, I played golf three days in a row. Happy to put the clubs away now and have a little bit of a break from it.
0: Yeah, are your arms sore?
1: No, no, I don't. I don't get sore at all. I, but I do like lose interest and I kind of start playing like shit if I play too much. Hmm. So it's a weird, weird thing. You know, I've played golf all my life. So if I if I don't play for like a month, then I come out. Playing pretty well <laughs> but if i play like three or four days in a row then i start i don't know i'd like try too hard or it's just a strange thing i, I do better with zero practice
0: okay <laughs> good to know um <clears throat> so uh, any other exciting things you want to talk about or um
1: well i guess i should do a little pitch i've still got this class coming up on january 10th um, it's in the evening and it's going to be a review of the December, 2017 LSAT prep test 83. If you took the test, it's a perfect time to, uh, get together with me online and review the entire test. Um, if you haven't taken the test, we will send you a copy of the test before the session and you can, uh, do it and still participate in the class. So good way to get moving toward the February exam and, um, even if you're taking it in June, might as well just get cracking. So that's on January 10th, and you can register for that on my website foxlset.com.
0: Cool, awesome. Yeah, um, yeah. So let's uh, jump into some of this stuff. We've gotten several emails about the new uh, 509 reports, and yep. I think that they're interesting. And I want to know why or what you think as to why they've made some of these changes that they've made. Um, Who knows?
1: It seems like every change to the five hundred nines is worse. Yeah.
0: So let's. I don't so see of, anything good. <laughs> yeah. So just to recap here: the the five hundred nines are ABA required disclosure documents that um, all law schools have to spit out every year, and they have a lot of good information. We've talked about them a lot before. Hopefully, you've heard about them, and. Um, They include things like how much money uh, the school has given scholarships. In the past, they've included bar passage rates. Uh, They've included information including um, how many people have transferred to that school and what schools they specifically came from. So a lot of good stuff. uh, But the new disclosures, at least from what I remember, are missing two things. One, they're missing the bar passage rates now. And they're also no longer uh, including the part-time program information. It seems like they've lumped it all together or they're just reporting the full-time student data. So, for example, before you could look and see what LSAT and GPA numbers you would need to be in the 25th percentile for a full-time, their full-time program as well as their part-time program. Uh, same for the 50th and 75th percentiles for those numbers. So you could kind of compare and say, oh, this is how much easier it is to get into the part-time program. But now that part-time information is gone. I mean that may not affect a lot of people, but I still found that to be interesting information for anyone who's really serious about getting into a particular school. Uh, is it? Are the, are the 509s missing anything else that I've forgotten?
1: Well, I mean, yeah. Taking away the part-time information is annoying. Taking away the bar passage information is really annoying. I mean, I, I just don't. Bar passage rate is a really good indicator of the quality of school, not quality of education, but quality of your fellow competitors at, at the school. And mm-hmm. they just they just entirely removed the bar passage information from the five hundred nine.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's very strange. It. Like if you're in the 50th percentile for a school and you plan on going there, you you can say, oh, I'm a pretty average student at this school. Therefore, the bar passage rates are pretty indicative of how likely it is that I'm going to pass the bar and yeah. therefore how likely it is that I'm going to be able to use my JD. And now that information is not being mandatorily disclosed. i it, yeah, it's bizarre. I mean, you can still figure it out, right? Maybe somehow. <laughs> I well, I mean,
1: the bar—they still have to publish bar passage rates, right? I mean, that that's still going to be public information somewhere. It's just now it's not on the five hundred nine anymore.
0: If it's anymore. if it's not required by the five hundred nine, where could would they have to disclose it? If they don't have to disclose it, that's a it good to-
1: question. I I hope our listeners will get on the phone and call the ABA and ask them what's going on with this because that's if if the whole point of the 509 is to protect consumers mm-hmm. then taking the bar passage rate off of there just seems like they're dropping the ball uh, that's just like not doing your job yeah so i, I yeah I, I really don't i don't get it i mean i don't know who runs the you know who's in charge at the ABA but if it's like mediocre law schools you know if it's deans of mediocre law schools if it's the david fegmans of the world <laughs> who who for real who are you know, like, he wants to cry about the California bar passage rate and how it's low. Meanwhile, his school has a lower bar passage rate than the state average. But if, you know, I could see him having a big campaign of like, oh, well, this, you know, we're muddying the waters here by having the the, AB, the bar passage rate on these 509s. It's not – yeah, it's painting a bad picture. You know, it's making us look like we're not doing the excellent job we we surely are. <laughs> and I don't know. I mean, I'm <laughs> – uh, so that's obviously 100% speculative, but I don't know because I do know that the, f- the bar passage rates aren't on the 509 anymore, and that's that is uh, that is disturbing. I would say.
0: Yeah, I really wonder what the rationale was. Like, more information would always make sense, right? Like, yeah, more information, or maybe less information if some of that information is either truly misleading or. Try, uh, and ends up hiding more important information, right? But bar passage rates is, is not <laughs> misleading, and it's not hiding important information. It is the important information. Yeah, I, I don't know what would possibly be more important
1: than tuition, scholarships, and bar passage. Yeah. So they took away the bar passage, and then, yeah, the scholarships used to be on the bottom of the first page, and now they've moved all the scholarship stuff down the page to the second page, mm-hmm. which is almost as if they're trying to hide it,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? It's like this 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 information is critical that they're charging $55,000 a year, but they're giving 80% of the class some sort of a big tuition discount. And now they've got that. That information now is like, <laughs> it's still there, but you have to look a little harder for it.
0: So I wonder uh, if the 509s were not as frequently referenced, even just a few years ago. And so disclosing all this information on them wasn't such a big deal to law schools because people didn't know about them.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I wonder if now we've got this like army of thinking LSAT listeners marching into the admissions offices, holding the 509 report in their hand, (laughs) you know, like, Hey, it says here on your 509 that you gave 80% of your class a scholarship last year. Where's my money? Yeah, and um, so
0: yeah, <laughs> creates for awkward uh, conversations. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's awkward for them. I mean, it's not yeah. awkward for the student who's no, now no, armed with not. The, the the negotiating information. You know, um, no, I mean it. That kind of information definitely empowers uh, the buyer side of the deal, uh, the negotiation, which is that's what we're all about. So yeah, um, I don't know. I, I I don't get it. It's it's disturbing. It's weird. They switched to. I mean, it could be totally accidental, right? It could be some office schmo at the ABA who just was tinkering around with the form and and botched it. Mm-hmm. It could be a completely an accident. Yeah. But it's easy to sort of uh, infer some nefarious purposes here.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, it's also ironic that um... – the the new form has a more modern feel to it. I think they're trying to clean it up a little bit, but ironically, the information seems less accessible. Now maybe that's just because uh I was used to the old format, but the I felt like some of the informa it, it's almost like the information blurs together a little bit more uh with the new format.
1: Oh, it's clearly a worse format. There's no question. It's it's it, yeah, I guess it's more modern, but is it longer now? It looks like it stretches like, is it more pages or do I, I I just never cared about the last page. I don't know what it is. It's just, it doesn't do as good of a job showing the information that I think is really important. So now this, uh, and completely does not include bar passage.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Regardless of how it's formatted this, this, uh, this one uh, correspondent wrote in and said about the five Oh nines. Uh, Hey, Look at Yale's, and if we look at Yale's, it has this information about the um, applicant pool, and it says that 200, let's see, what is it? 205 people are in the first-year class, and there were 163 of them who came from the applicant pool. And then it has this other number. It says other first-year enrollees. 42 so that's the difference so 163 plus 42 is how you get the 205 so 205 in the first year class but 42 of them which is a big number are are not coming from the applicant pool and she says who are the 42 other first year enrollees did they not complete applications that group is nearly a fourth of yale's 1l class i i'm confused about that number do you know anything about that number I have no idea. I, that's
1: uh, that's a question for Ann maybe. Yeah, I, I just I have no idea.
0: So Brooklyn, let's find that out. Yeah, well,
1: listeners might know.
0: Yeah, I, you know, somebody write in the show and tell us. I was actually going to just throw this back to Brooklyn, if she doesn't mind. Maybe just call Yale and ask them. They're not going to know who you are, so you can just say, "Hey, I'm looking at your 509, which, by the way, now lacks some information." Um, but I was curious who these uh, other people are. They might just tell you.
1: Yeah. Actually, our listeners should call every law school and ask them why the bar passage rate is not on the 509 anymore. <laughs> they should. And, yeah. Um, by the way, this is from the 2017 509s. If you Google just um, law school name ABA 509, you might start looking at the 2016 um, report, which is still really instructive. But you may as well at this point go to abarequireddisclosures.org. org. And uh, look at all the 2017 reports to get the most uh, recent information.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. All the ones in the search results are still 2016, but uh, Google will catch up soon, I'm
1: sure. But yeah. anyway, yeah, ABA required disclosures.org. And you can see the 2017 509 for every school. But seriously, before you enroll at School X, please call School X and ask them some tough questions, including uh, why is the why Why is your bar passage rate
0: not on your 509? Or at least, what is your bar passage rate now, right, compared yeah. to what it was before? Yep. <laughs> I'm not too sure that they'll know how to answer the other question. Some of them might. Uh, I'm not sure why it's not there anymore. But it would be great to ask, if you're willing. We sh- We need an answer on that. I mean,
1: what <sighs> – I don't understand the point of the d- – if it's a – it's a mandated disclosure for a reason, right? Aren't they supposed to be protecting applicants? Mm-hmm. Isn't that the plan? I, I, then why would I you assume. not put bar passage right?
0: <laughs> Come on, ABA, get it together. But at the same time, it's like all these things that are regulated, right? Like the regulated entities become the most influential voice right. uh, for the regulators, and they end up working together in a lot of ways. Um, and the regulators maybe don't necessarily realize it all the time too, right? I'm sure they were given compelling reasons for removing that information. Or maybe they were. And then they thought, yes, in the best interest of law school applicants, we should remove this information. So sometimes I think the regulators are duped. And other times they're like, what's Well, they this? also
1: get they get infiltrated, right? Yeah. Like the regular – you end up – Somebody who used to be a law school dean is yep, now the, the regulator. Mm-hmm. And so then, of course, that law school dean is like, oh, well, you know, we we don't want to scare students away by putting these. We don't need to put the bar passage rates on this form. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we don't need to burden them with that information. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, here, yeah, I guess I'll jump into this next one unless you have anything else to say about that. No, let's move it along. Cool. Ben and Nate. Oh, sorry.
1: Let me just say um, thanks to Sean and Trina and uh, also Brooklyn for writing in
0: about the, the new 509s. Yeah, thanks. Ben and Nate, hope all is well with you. I just listened to episode 111, and the email that mentioned accommodations for medical students reminded me that I wanted to email you. When I was in pharmacy school, there were several students in my class that did poorly the first semester of our first year. Several students had failed one class, and a few had failed more than one. Oh, yeah, this is getting into the accommodations hot water <laughs> for here. Pharmacist. yeah. <laughs> Each student was given the opportunity to meet with a school-selected psychologist for evaluation. Each student was determined to have a learning impairment and a need for accommodation. Determined was in quotes... Each student was then given, for the remaining four years of pharmacy school, time and a half for testing. A handful of students repeated the first year after failing classes the second semester, and they were again given time and a half for the second try. These students were also given accommodations when they sat for the NAPLEX, (laughs) N-A-P-L-E-X, I guess that's some pharmacy test, to become licensed pharmacists. Those of us that did not have accommodations would quietly snicker and make jokes, wondering if their future employers would give them time and a half to fill prescriptions. So, I do not think that this is solely limited to or only popular among future lawyers. Keep that in mind the next time you go to the doctor or have a prescription filled. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. Um, okay, yeah, so accommodations... Uh, extends beyond law school. That's not surprising.
1: Yeah. No, I'm not surprised at all. I think Josh wanted to give us a little chuckle and scare the shit out of us about going to the doctor slash pharmacy.
0: Yeah. Uh, Okay, cool. Thanks, Josh. Um, You want to take this one?
1: Sure. Thanks for the podcast. Use my name. If you please, Nathan and I spoke on the phone. Once conversation goes Wes, Hey, Nathan, nice to meet you. I bought the Kaplan book and Nathan cuts me off. Burn it. I took your advice. Well, I threw it out. One critical thing I learned comes from Nathan. And I also believe this is one thing people give Nathan personal shit for. You are so fucking critical. But when I watch your videos, it makes sense why. I embraced your attitude and started reading logical reasoning like an asshole. Literally saying in my head, Mm, Okay, that's not literally then. But anyway, um, saying in my head, okay, and so what? And why do I care? I have become an asshole to the author. This changed everything. I force the author to convince me and they never do. Then I look at the answers who are my enemies and I know that only one can be my friend. I fucking hate the answers because they are liars and frauds like the author. Avoid them like the plague. But one of those guys, just one, is my friend. I grab my friend out of the shitstorm of the other answers and move on. So Nathan, thanks. Your tone, although it can come off as rigid, is exactly the attitude I take into logical reasoning and reading comprehension now. Um. Oh, and then a pledge to give us money for uh, <laughs> for, for for ten dollars for every improvement point over his over his diagnostic. Okay, great. Cool. Wow. Thank, that's, <laughs> that's Wes. Thanks Wes. Um, yeah, I appreciate it. I do think, right. I mean, I, uh, yeah, you can get yourself in trouble with your friends and family if you take that attitude into real life with you, but on the logical reasoning, if you just read it with an eye to like spotting the bullshit, um, boy, it makes your life so much easier. I mean, logical reasoning really is easy if you do it with that attitude.
0: Yeah. And, I do want to say one thing about this. I think it's very good to be critical, but sometimes people get confused about this advice and they think that it means to be critical of everything, including Mm. premises, which we have to accept as true. And you say it all the time on the show and, and I say it all the time as well. We're saying, what's wrong with this argument assuming... Your premises are true. I granted yeah. for the sake of argument i'll accept your stupid premise, even if it is stupid, and right. then try to figure out what's wrong from there because a lot of times this negative energy, which is good negative energy is that can you say that good sure. negative energy yeah. <laughs> yeah. can be misdirected right and um and and in that sense uh uh throw people off because they're so caught up about how. Something is stupid and wrong. And it's sort of like, yeah, but I'm just going to have to eat that for now and then figure out why this other thing is wrong. This conclusion or intermediate conclusion is wrong. Uh, even if I accept these other ideas as true. I just want to clarify that. I think this is great, but.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. W- right. I'll read the premises and, but I, I do like kind of you know i'm i'm sort of look giving the side eye to the premises mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. i'm looking at the premises and i'm a lot of times the premises are not something that i would like to believe in real life right mm-hmm. i'll i'll read and I'll, and i'll just go well okay if you say so mhm right that's mm-hmm. my that's my response to those premises
0: sure the conclusion
1: yeah. i'm like no this is bullshit your premises don't add up to your conclusion yeah the premises a lot of times I'll either I might agree with them I might go oh okay yeah all right that's fine I'll buy that but other times I'll read a premise and I'll go uh all right if you say so you know like um for example some tarantulas make good pets yeah right and you I read that and I go oh for you maybe yeah but I am going to accept it if I if I understand that it's a premise of the argument then I'm going to say, okay, we're living in a universe now where some tarantulas make good pets. Yeah. So what? Yeah. And then and then I'll force them to prove use that premise with other premises to either prove their conclusion. Sometimes. Yeah. What they actually did do in in that particular example from prep test eighty two, mm-hmm. but. Um, if they don't, then I'm going to jump all over them and say, no, no, no. Your conclusion is
0: bullshit. You did not get there. Yeah. And one thing to keep in mind is that although you have to accept the premises is true, you only have to accept what was literally said, right? So if they say right. um, the the best scientists in the world uh, argue that the world is coming to an end or something like that, you're like, okay. I have to accept the fact that these scientists are arguing that, but I don't have to accept the fact that the world is coming to an end because that has not been presented as a fact. That's only been presented as an argument of someone else. An
1: opinion of these scientists. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's an easy example,
0: but you can, you have like sort of nuanced sentences where, okay, I have to accept exactly what this sentence says, but nothing more. And I'm not going to accept
1: anything more. Exactly. And some tarantulas make good pets that means that there is one or more tarantulas Mm -hmm. that would make a good pet. Yep. That does not mean that all tarantulas or most most tarantulas make Mm -hmm. good pets. It also doesn't mean that they're the best pets or even that they're above average pets. Yeah. You know, at a minimum, it basically means, well, there's one tarantula that's an okay pet. Yeah. You know? And so you can accept that premise without accepting, you know, more than the premise really actually says.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Um, All right. Thanks, Wes, for writing in. All right. Uh, This next listener writes, what's up, dudes? (laughs) What's up? (laughs) What's up? (laughs) (laughs) So here's a quick debriefing. Uh, This doesn't look quick. No. Purely out of naivete, I took the September LSAT after only self-studying for a couple of weeks. Needless to say, I didn't do too well. Okay, my cold diagnostic was a 154, which is great, by the way, and I was devastated, to say the least, when I scored a 150. I obviously—that's the type of shit that happens when you self-study for
1: two weeks. Yeah, the cold diagnostic maybe was a little bit above your, you know, average level. Mm -hmm. When you you kind, you know, maybe a little lucky to get the 154, maybe a little unlucky to get the 150, but those two numbers are basically the same ballpark. Yeah, and you didn't really prep. So,
0: yeah. There you go. No surprise. I obviously shouldn't have been surprised. Good. But if nothing else, it served as a much-needed wake-up call, and I've been studying much more effectively since then. I'm registered for the December LSAT, and I have taken – whoa, so how late we are in reading these emails. I know. Oh, well, I hope this is helpful. I registered for the December LSAT, and I've taken 12 prep tests with an average of 162.5. Whoa, it's a very precise number. High of 167, low of 158 since receiving my September score. Okay, first off, on the September test, while I didn't exactly take a gargantuan amount of prep tests, of the five or so I did, I was averaging right around 157. Okay, after scoring 150 on the actual test, I'm super concerned with the inherent possibility of another seven-point drop. What are some of the typical reasons, if any, you guys have seen that cause a large drop on test day and what are some of the ways I can counter this? I already get half of my tuition paid for by the university for research I'm doing and a 160 should leave me paying little to zilch tuition at the University of Utah. Uh, Okay, so we've talked about this a lot before, but there are at least two reasons. Or what were you going to say? I didn't mean to cut you off.
1: Yeah, no, first one I would say is just trying to do too much on the day. Mm -hmm. You're you're averaging around one fifty-seven and you think if a one sixty is gonna get you a full ride, and then you shoot for that one sixty when you're actually more of a one fifty-seven kind of a guy, and you end up with a one fifty because you know, all you have to do is attempt one too many questions per section. You know, like you you put the pedal down two percent too fast. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's enough to get pulled over. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you, um, you know, that, that's, I think the, maybe the most, well, one is people don't time themselves enough. And so then when they have to sit for the time test, they freak out. Mm-hmm. But I think two on the day, people build it up to be this big thing and, and they make it, it's, this is different from all of my practice tests
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: they try for something different and they get something different. Yeah. But it's not different. It's not the different they want. It's a, it's a different that they're not going to be happy with mm-hmm. when they try to play a game they don't have.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, the golf analogy, like, you know, I am an okay golfer, but I can't stand up there and try to smoke it like tiger woods. You know, I have to hit the shot that I can hit. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what people do a lot is they, they go out there and they, they try to do something that's just not really in their game. Yeah, yeah. So that that's I don't know. Do you have other reasons for, uh, for this?
0: No, it's ex- I mean it's exa- on the exact same lines. They, in an effort to score higher, like you're saying, they go a little bit faster to try to do a little bit more, or they yep. go a little slower to uh, try to be perfect. Try to be perfect, and they're triple checking question one. You know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then they check it. Then they
1: look at their watch and they think they're behind time and then they start hauling, you know, start trying to fix, pick up the pace and right. You got to be just doing, it should feel as much as possible. It should feel just like the practice tests. Mm -hmm. It's prep test 83. Yeah. You know, the December test was.
0: So (laughs) (laughs) just treat it like a regular test. Try not to do anything special. Secondly, of the prep tests I'm taking, I typically miss around one to three reading comp questions. However, there are a few outlier tests where I'll miss seven to nine out of nowhere. Do you guys see this frequently? What's the common cause of this? Uh Another reading comp question. For some reason, 95% of the reading comp questions I'm missing are main point questions. What's the best advice for
1: approaching these questions? Hmm. Yeah, my advice there is it's the same for both of those issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're going to miss seven to nine, that means you just didn't really comprehend the passage yeah, or or one or more of the passages. Mm -hmm. And if you're missing a, a main point question, that means you didn't comprehend the passage. Yeah. You're not comprehending, dude, you have to comprehend. And so I guess my, my fix for both of these issues is you need to start predicting the
0: answers especially on the main point question, right? Oh, I agree 100%. I would say that 75% of the questions in reading comp are questions in which you can come up with a loose prediction before you go into the answer choices. It's something that almost no one does when they first start preparing for the LSAT. They just read the question and they start looking at answer choice A and like, hmm, does this seem like an answer for that? But from the vast majority of questions in reading comp – and and that includes main point questions, you can think to yourself, hmm, what is the main point? What would I say is the main point before looking at the five answer choices? And then once you have that loose prediction, I always say loose because it's not like you're going to predict the exact wording of the LSAT or need to confine yourself in some sort of ridiculous way or spend hours crafting the right answer. You're just thinking to yourself, okay, the main point here is that this guy wants us to use fewer natural resources when trying to plan a city or something, right? You get the general gist and then you go into the answer choices and you look for the one that's along those lines. Um, I would add a few more specific tips for main point questions. One, the wrong answers tend to be maybe an accurate claim, but too narrow of a claim. So they tend to be something that was said in the passage, which can make them tempting, but it's not what the author was trying to prove. Overall, it's more like a premise or a specific idea, but not the main point. Um, the wrong answers also tend to be inaccurate. So you'll you'll find you'll be going through the answer choice, and there'll be a particular word or phrase that contradicts something that was in the passage, and you're like, okay, well, it's wrong for that reason. Um, I'm trying to think of the third thing I was going to say. Oh, shoot. I just forgot. Well, that's no good. Oh, I, those two are
1: really good. I mean, I when I say predict the answer, sometimes that's, you know, it's like conclusory to say that. Mm-hmm. Well, all you got to do is just predict the answer. Mm-hmm. But the question you're trying to answer is, why does this document exist? Yeah, You're a lawyer. Mm-hmm. This thing crossed your desk. Mm-hmm. Your boss wants to know what this thing is. You got to tell me. What this, what, why does this document exist? What do they want? Yeah. What do they want? Yeah. And so the wrong answer is, yeah, they can either misstate the passage. Clearly that's not the answer. If it's misdescribing the argument or going further than the argument, mm-hmm. that would make it wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, but also if it's just part of the argument, it's like, well, this is something they talked about. This is something they said. Yeah. That can be an attractive wrong answer choice if you're not making a good prediction before you start looking at the answer choices. Yeah. So I'm doubling down on you know Wes's recommendation from the earlier email, which is the answer choices are not your friend. You have to describe this argument. Why does this argument exist? Oh, well, basically, here's what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Now go down into the answer choices and find the closest thing you can find to that without over-describing or misdescribing the argument. Mm-hmm. If you do that, it's gonna make you better at all the other questions, by the way, because you're gonna have a clearer understand like the I think the act of predicting that main point answer mm-hmm. just solidifies your understanding of the passage. Yeah. You don't get you don't get so confused by all of the other wrong answers. Mm-hmm. Right? You're just quick to say, no, well, they didn't say that. No, they said the opposite of that. No, that's not the answer. Of course not. Oh, they did say this, but that's just part of their argument. That's not their main point. Yeah. Oh yeah, here we go. This is their main point. And then you use that main point to inform your answers and your predictions on all the other
0: questions. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. You were going to say 75% of the answers you could predict, right? Yeah. Or like loosely. Mm -hmm. A lot of times that boils down to just a a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. You know, what does the author think about this topic Mm -hmm. or this, this, what does the author think about X, Y, Z? And if you can at least go, oh, well, the author generally doesn't like that. It could be that there's only one answer that's negative. Yeah, in which case that's the answer. Yeah. So I don't know. It's a lot easier than people make it out to be. I think, but the the uh, for me, the big mistakes are reading too quickly and you know not just not really comprehending and um, getting into the answer choices way too
0: quickly and just getting confused. Yeah. I have one more. I do remember the one last thing I wanted oh, to good. say about main point questions, and that is sometimes. Uh, when people are debating between two answer choices, it can help to zero in on the verb phrase because the z- the verb phrase of the answer choice, of that sentence, is conveying like – I know this sounds weird because I don't really know how to describe it. But the main point of that sentence, right? Like it, if you have a subject and the subject is a bunch of people and it's like these people are excited – and then the sentence goes on about yada 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 or whatever you can focus in on that vra- verb phrase and say hmm was this passage trying to convince me or inform me that these people are excited about this thing or was it something else like it can it's i'm not saying you should ignore the rest of the answer choice everything in the correct answer needs to be correct but it's sometimes you, if you zero on, in on the verb phrase, you're like, wait a sec. No, this isn't about whether or not they are excited. It's about whether or not they went forward with their research or whether or not their research should go forward um, or something like that, right? So focusing in on the verb phrase can sometimes help people see how an answer choice is really bad. When mistakenly they're looking at the whole thing holistically and they somehow turn it into something good.
1: Okay. Yeah. I mean, for me, that's a little bit more like one part of an answer can make it wrong a lot easier than one part of an answer can make it right. Yes, absolutely. So if you you narrow it down to two, then something like these people are excited about if, hey, they better have been excited in the passage and that better be their point. Mm Mm-hmm. Or else that's just not going to be the answer because it's like misdescribing sort of.
0: Yeah. Cool. Cool. All right. So this goes on. Lastly, with the logical reasoning sections, I've frequently heard the debate over whether or not to read the question of the stimulus stimulus first. What's your guys' opinion? Check out the last episode. That would be episode 118. Also, I've heard a lot of people taking questions 1 through 10, the easier ones and then going to the last questions in a hope that they'll get more assimilated to the tougher questions before tackling the middle of the section where the hardest questions typically reside, supposedly. So short answer, read the passage first. We talk about that a lot in the last episode. The answer to this next question is this sounds way too gimmicky and complicated. That's a turd of
1: wisdom right there. There's no, there's no way. There's no way that that's a good idea you can point to a section where number 25 was easy. Yeah. But for every time you can do that, I can point you to a number 25 that was the hardest question in the section. Yeah. And you know, you should go from start to finish skipping around in the logical reasoning is a big waste of time. What the hell? This is just, that's just a dumb, what? What? You're going to get more assimilated to the tougher ones. <laughs> War, before. You're I, don't, <laughs> I do not think that the hard S ones typically are, reside in the middle of the section. Certainly not. They get harder as you go deeper into the section. Yeah. Yes, you can show me a number 19 that is the hardest question in the section, of course. But I can also show you plenty of number 24s and 25s that are the hardest question in the section.
0: I think what happens so, here is that. When the last question is very easy, right, and someone spent a ton of time on question 24, the test ends, and 24 was hard, and they got it wrong. And then they go to question 25 after their time is up, and they're like, oh, my gosh, this question was so easy. And they remember that, and they think to themselves, why didn't I do that one first? But what about all the times where you did 24 – and that was easy. You got to 25, it was hard. You didn't even have time to finish it. Right. And that was that. You don't remember that because you were just doing what you normally would do. Right. Yeah, it it's not
1: it's yeah, just don't don't do it. Don't skip around. It's not worth It's not worth the drama. You can misbubble your answer sheet if you do that. Um if you know, if the questions had a difficulty scale on them. Mhm. by the way, it's all relative to you, you know, I mean, there are questions, I suppose, that are just on average harder for everybody, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. there's also some relativity involved where you might think a question is easy and someone else might think it's hard. So I don't know. But anyway, if they ranked them, you know, if they had a little one through 10 difficulty scale attached to each question, then it would make a lot of sense to do the easiest ones first. Yeah. But they don't. And you can't tell just by glancing at it. And you certainly can't arbitrarily just decide that, well, number nineteen is always really hard, so I'm gonna skip that one. I mean that that's not how this works. It's it's <laughs> too good to be true, and it is. So that that is just a, a big turd right there. Yeah.
0: Um well how would you pronounce his name? Jace? Jace. Jace. Yeah. Thank you for writing in. Jace concludes P.S. I'm going to I'm gonna go ahead and up the ante. For every point above one sixty I get on the December LSAT, I'll donate ten bucks to the podcast. Cool. Sweet. Thanks, Chase. Thanks for writing in. Yeah.
1: Um okay. Hi, Ben and Nathan. Please call me Samantha if you read this for the podcast. My husband, call him William, and I have been listening to your podcast for a few months now, and your advice has been incredibly helpful in preparing for the LSAT and law school admissions. Thank you for all that you do. Overall situation. I'm seeking advice on my situation, which you probably don't come across too often. I will try to keep everything as concise as I can. My, You know what? By the way, when people say I will try to keep everything as concise as they can. They've already failed. That. Well, they could omit that sentence. That, that sentence right there needs to be inside. <laughs> yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, my husband and I are both planning on going to law school together for fall 2019. <clears throat> Long story short, while researching career options, we both individually came to the conclusion that we each want a career in the law. The reasons we think going to law school together would be beneficial are bullet points, we don't see the point in putting off the careers we want to pursue. It doesn't make sense for one of us to do a job we don't want while the other attends law school if we both know what we want to do. Going to school together might be less stressful in the sense that we will be going through it together and have an automatic study partner. First question for you. Are we crazy? And do you know anyone else who did something similar?
0: Uh you want to start? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if you really want to go to law school and you really want to become lawyers, then I kind of agree with these points. I just would hope that it's true that you really both want to become lawyers. Uh, By the
1: way, later we get some biographical information. Samantha's 22 and William's 25. Okay. Well, that changes
0: everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, I Yeah. I do agree that if you guys can work well together, um, having someone who's got your back and can help you study, I think that can be really good. Yeah. So I don't know. I would just be more concerned about whether or not they really want to both go to law school or they both have tricked themselves. Because see, here's one thing. You get into a group Mm. of two people and without outside opinions, you might be kind of reinforcing – the same assumptions and not realizing that you're both just sort of confirming each other's <laughs> total assumptions. And so
1: echo chamber. Yeah. Like you
0: need someone who would be really skeptical about law school as opposed to two people who seem gung ho about it and thus both kind of ignoring the downsides. And now you're both taking on this financial risk. So hopefully you can both go for free because if just one of you goes, then at least someone else is still kind of bringing in money as opposed to both bet in the house, I guess. <coughs> Yeah. I mean, don't pay for law school. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. So just that's our blanket advice. Um, we, we're still, we're still, (laughs) we're still on the, uh, don't pay for law school plan because you don't have to. Yeah. And so if if you guys don't pay for law school, then yeah, that changes everything. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I'm not one to be giving relationship advice. I, I will tell you this. Um, People get divorced in law school. I mean, they they break up with their uh, boyfriends, girlfriends, fiancés. Mm-hmm. They divorce their husbands and wives. It's not a hundred percent, but it is uh, well above zero percent. <laughs> it's a it is an extremely common thing that people end up splitting up in law school. But it's, these... it is mm-hmm. yeah. Go ahead. It, it's super duper stressful, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it it is um. It can be very discouraging. It can be very defeating because you find out that law school is not what you thought it was going to be. And if you're both going through this experience at the same time, yes, um, it might be less stressful because you'll have an automatic study partner or whatever, but it could be more stressful because you're both doing something super intense and stressful at the exact same time.
0: Yeah. I was thinking that that would actually help them understand what the other person is going through. I think a lot of that stress comes from like, well, why the fuck are you gone all the time and why do you care so much <laughs> about this and why aren't you, you know, giving me time? Right. And maybe here they'd both kind of be like, yeah, I see eye to eye with you. I see what you're going through. Go ahead, you know, go work on that. <laughs> um, I don't know, that that brief or whatever. I just finished doing that and that was a pain. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. it it, you're taking, (laughs) taking a risk, but just make sure you know you want to get into this. That's, that's what I'd be worried about. Well,
1: right. You each have to independently decide that you want to spend your life as a lawyer. And if you're both sure about that, then okay, you guys should both go to law school. Yeah. Whether you're going to both do it at the same time or not. I don't know. Maybe at the same school or not. eh, Maybe, maybe it makes things better. Um, if we're giving relationship advice, do you really want to spend 24 hours a day with your partner? Yeah. That seems kind of bonkers to me. Like you're going to be like holding hands, walking around the law school, sitting in the law library together and then going to and from school together and and sleeping in the same bed. And I don't know. (laughs) I guess some people could pull it off that way, but I I don't know about the, the, the super insular twenty four hours a day together seems kind of seems kind of crazy Yeah to
0: me. and not, and not enough detail has been provided here about what exactly you plan to do together. So if you could fill us in on that that'd be great. We could provide more, you know, tailored advice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, yeah. That would be fun. Here here's
1: here's some uh so there's, there's way too much in this. I, I can't read all of this, but, um, they're, they're both studying for the February 2018 test and they plan to apply for the fall 19 cycle, which is perfect that it, you're doing it right. Um, we have recently, this is the time of year where we get all the emails with people saying, well, what's wrong with taking the February LSAT and then applying in the same year. Yeah. And it's the reason is you're not going to get a scholarship. And if you don't get a scholarship to law school, you're an idiot. So, you need to, if you're taking the February LSAT, there's nothing wrong with that, but you need to apply at the beginning of the next cycle instead of applying this cycle. Yeah. I don't, we can't say that strongly enough. You just, you, it's, Now, you could, by some miracle, get a good scholarship offer with a late application. Mm-hmm. And if you do, that's great. But if you apply in March and you get in, but you don't get a scholarship, you are just getting ripped off. And I don't want to see people do that. So anyway, Samantha and William are doing it right here. Um, schedule wise. Yeah. Um, I get frustrated with that question cause I feel like I've answered that question 5,000 times. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, goddamn! damn. I don't know how many times I have to say that, but anyway, yeah, that that's why it's not a good idea to apply in March because you won't get a scholarship probably. Yeah. Okay. Um, I took the September 2017 LSAT, but unfortunately my LSAT got lost en route to the LSAC center and I did not receive a score. Oh my God, that blows. My test will show as an LSAC administrative cancellation. I'm actually not too upset about it since I felt like I needed to retake the test anyway. Blah, blah, blah.
0: She gets two free tests out of it. Okay, that's good. This just illustrates the stupidity. Of the LSAT in general. Why the heck did the Supreme Court just recently start accepting PDFs and the LSAT remains a paper-based test? I mean, this is absurd. (laughs) We lost your test. uh, (laughs) We lost the piece of paper. (laughs) Come on, lawyers. Uh, Jeez. I know. It's embarrassing to be a part of this space of the world. (laughs) Yeah, it really is.
1: It really is. Like pencils and paper? What? No no mechanical pencils. <laughs> um okay. Uh, but so now these they do look like pretty good applicants, you know. Samantha's got a 3.68, she had a diagnostic 159. She's currently scoring high 160s, occasionally a 170 or a 171. Perfect. Yeah. Uh William 25, he's got a 3.44, a diagnostic of a 161, currently scoring low to mid 160s. Yeah, I mean, if they both score 170 something, they both get a full ride.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Great. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Um, oh, career goals live in Minnesota. Samantha wants to work in Big Law. William wants to work in Big Law. Not set on a super specific track, open to different interests. Per, all that's perfect. None of that's going to make me lose sleep at night, right? That's, I mean, I don't know why you would want to work in big law. <laughs> yeah. I think that you might be miserable, but there are certain people who, you know, that's just the perfect path for them. So if you know what that means, and and you and that's really what you want to do, then good, more power to you. Oh, uh, you know, yeah. If you're the kind of crazy person for whom that is a perfect path, then good, go go for it. <laughs> um, and the reason why – I mean I encourage – when people say they want to work in big law, I always encourage them because that's like, oh, good. So you're going to be one of the lawyers that actually makes money.
0: Yeah. Well, if they want to work in big law and they see a viable path to that, right? Some some people yeah. who want to do that, they plan to go to a lower-ranked law school and that's just not an option. So then you're really setting well, it's yourself not, up a failure. Yeah.
1: It's, an un, it's, it's far more unlikely. It's, it's less likely. Yeah. Put it that way i mean people come out of every law school and end up working in big law but just you know it becomes like this razor thin margin where you have to be
0: number one in your class kind of thing dude this conversation reminds me of when i wanted to work in big law boy man how little did i know did you have anybody who tried to talk you out of it was no, anybody like no Ben, this is crazy no it was all uh uh Pretty much everyone in my family has sort of a technical uh, background. Yeah. And so going to law school was sort of like, oh, uh, OK, like, hmm, interesting. Um, but I think they looked at law like a lot of people still maybe unfortunately look at law as this other respectable path, right? Whereas, and that was even more so when I was considering law school than now. And so, no, I didn't get a lot of pushback. I don't think yeah. I got any. It was just like, oh, well, that's a different path. That's not a hard science, but we'll, we'll still accept you. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> it,
1: people need to figure out whether that's really how they want to spend their life. I mean, you are going to be for, – for a lot of young people, you know, you're know, you going to be working for the bad guy. You're going to be making a lot of money working for the bad guy. And if, if you don't care – and, and you want to make a lot of money and you want to work a ton of hours, then fantastic. Yeah. That's kind of the choice you're making. I mean, that's the reason why they have to pay those people so much money <laughs> because it's super stressful, super long hours. And you are not, you know, you you are working in some, for some unsavory causes frequently mm-hmm. or you're just working in money. You know, it's just, money. yeah, it's not it's a like bad just, cause big it's Just fighting over money. Yeah we need to get these people
0: their money transferred to go f- there or whatever.
1: Yeah, and you want to go do legal battles for millions and billions of dollars, you know, if that's what you want to do, if you want to spend your life like fighting over a pie.
0: Mhm.
1: For for high stakes. At, at which some people do and it's perfect. So <laughs> anyway, sounds like Samantha and William, you know, they've thought about it, I guess, a little bit. Sounds like they're on that track. That'd be the Minnesota
0: power um, couple.
1: Yeah. Minnesota power couple that Minnesota number one choice lists a bunch of reach schools and safety schools and target schools. Uh, In general, do you think that us applying together will affect the admissions process and how our applications are considered slash reviewed?
0: I think people will recognize that they kind of, that they might need to accept uh, both if they accept one not that they have not that they have to or are required to but they'll probably realize that oh these two people are applying they're married uh do we want both because if if you say yes you're gonna say yes together almost certainly or no together so they'll know they get two <laughs> so if they like both your applications i don't know how much it would affect, yeah. been but i think they'll have that in the back of their mind
1: Well, these two are getting in for sure. I mean, if they can get their 170 LSAT, which it seems like there's no reason why they can't. Yeah. um, They're going to get into Minnesota. There's just the scholarships are the important thing. So I'm going to just sort of paraphrase a lot of this here. And um, unfortunately, we are not going to be able to give very much advice. It says, obviously, scholarships are going to be hugely important. We completely agree with you that paying for law school is a bad idea. We've looked at the ABA reports for Minnesota, but scholarships are not too clear because we are both splitters with low GPA and possible high LSAT. I mean, the GPAs aren't that low; they're pretty good, actually, but um, or solid anyway. Um, But okay, I get it. You're a little low uh, compared to the median, maybe, uh, but you could be higher uh, on the LSAT. And then she just is asking, you know, do you think it's possible for William to get a scholarship? Do you think it's possible for me to get a scholarship? I have no idea. Uh, we
0: could speculate. Do you want to speculate, Ben? Uh, I think with a high LSAT score, you have a good chance of getting some scholarship.
1: Yeah, that's the best I can say. You have some chance you, you get, get a really great LSAT score and it'll certainly put you in the conversation. Negotiate hard, you know, apply broadly, give yourself lots of options and tell them just, you know, you could be pretty explicit. Like, Hey, I'm not, I'm not going to, pay you that much money. <laughs> like I, I'm sorry, but, but I'm going to need more yeah. scholarship. Yeah. Um, thank you for your input, Samantha and will PS as an admissions advisor. I greatly appreciated episode 114 and your advice on what to ask admissions advisors. It really can get annoying when I spend half my day telling people what they should have known if they had attempted Googling it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, if you're going to go to one of those, law fairs or whatever, if you're going to start taking up one of these admissions people's time. Um, yeah. Make sure you have something sensible to ask that you can't just find
0: out on Google in five seconds. Yeah. Cool. All right. Next one. Uh, if you use this for the podcast, you may use my name, but I don't see their name. Do you see their name? Uh, no. Okay. Nameless. Nathan and Ben, Nathan's online class in the podcast has been invaluable in my preparation. I have been invaluable. I have a few questions. I know I am asking for a lot of advice, but whatever insight you guys offer is greatly appreciated. Quick background. I graduated in 2010 with a BE in Marine Engineering and Merchant Mariner License. A Merchant Mariner License. Okay. Uh... With a 2.7 GPA. And I've worked in the facilities engineering and ship management in industry for seven years. I currently work as a project manager for a construction company in Tampa. My plan is to attend law school in fall of 2019 in the Midwest at the age of 31. I want to become a patent attorney. Okay. I have taken the June LSAT with a Kaplan book and I got a 140. Current practice tests have been in the 155 to 160 range. What is your per, what's what's your opinion on pursuing a JD MBA? Uh, I've heard a, that a JD MBA would be helpful primarily for corporate law, and many schools offer this dual program for an IP patent attorney. I'm still on the fence about it. My advice, whenever anyone asks about this, is to choose. Your poison. Just choose one. Do you want to become an attorney, or do you want to go into business? I um, I don't. I feel like when people do both, it's because they don't know what they want to do when they leave. Well, it's like why people
1: go to grad school eighty percent of the time, anyway. They have no idea what they want to do with their life. Yeah. Um, I I have a an MBA. I didn't my MBA before I did my JD. Mm-hmm. Um, having both, I feel like the MBA was of zero value. If I would have decided to be a lawyer, mm-hmm. I, I just don't think you're learning anything. You're, I don't know. I kind of feel like I didn't learn anything in my MBA program, period.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, the MBA program was a lot of like <clears throat> cocktail parties and networking, fancy, <laughs> fancy PowerPoint presentations. Yeah. It wasn't like, I mean, I, and I went to an okay, and I didn't go to, you know, top MBA program in the country where it's super rigorous. Like if you go to Chicago and you're studying all this like high powered math and finance and stuff, that's different. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But if you're just getting an MBA from, you know, a normal school, I don't know that you're actually learning anything that you can't just later learn on the job as a lawyer. Mm -hmm. So I'm not impressed. I mean, and if I like saw a stack of resumes in front of me and some of them said JDs and some of them said MBAs, I would be far more impressed with the JDs. I think the JD is a much more rigorous program. It's harder. Everything about it is harder. And so I just feel like the JD sort of trumps the MBA anyway.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. And, And, but yeah, it's pretty clear. Don't get a JD unless you want to practice law if you want to practice law, you have to get a JD MBA. I'm not sure what it's for. Honestly. I think an MBA is to get promoted. If you already work at general electric and you're a middle manager and you want to get yourself, move up the ladder in the management training program. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think, I mean, I went to the perpetually number one ranked entrepreneur business program in the country. Babson college. Okay, It's like known for entrepreneurship. Okay. I do not think it actually helped me for entrepreneurship. (laughs) It's like, basically what I learned is that any idiot can start a business. Yeah. And so I, so I, yeah, sure I did, but it's not like, I I don't think that that MBA uniquely positioned me to go kill it in, you know, the venture capital, whatever.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: I think if you want to start a business, you just start a business. Yeah. Because that's, I mean, for one, you don't have to pay however, whatever hundred thousand dollars or more for an MBA. If you just start your business, you could use that money to start your business Yeah, and learn everything you need to learn on the job. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I'm never really a fan of these JD MBA programs. I don't understand as someone who has both, I don't (laughs) use either of them and I just don't understand why you would want to do.
0: (laughs) I don't, I don't get it. Uh, It's funny. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So, especially for IP, I, I just don't I don't see the I don't see the benefit there. Well, people think they're going to be an IP patent
1: attorney and they don't have a technical background. Uh, although here, this by the way is Thomas. I looked up I forgot to paste the name in there, but this is Thomas.
0: Okay. Thomas.
1: And so Thomas has a background in maritime engineering, mm-hmm. and well, so then maybe IP is actually feasible.
0: mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Yeah,
1: but I think I think normally, like if you're not an engineer, I just don't think you're going to be an IP attorney. No, no. I was just saying IP in relation to the MBA. Like, I don't. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, so for sure, like, yeah. no, an MBA. I do not think an MBA helps you to become an IP, a IP
0: attorney. Yeah, <laughs> not, not at all. If you're gonna, if you want to go into like strategic IP positioning, even then, understanding the law and doing well on that side is is all you need because the business side of this is going to come from you being totally up to date in your field not from getting an MBA. I don't. Right. Think, yeah. It's no,
1: I don't think the MBA does anything as far as patent strategy, patent litigation, all that stuff. I just don't think the MBA teaches you anything about that stuff. My m b a we studied you know like surface level economics, surface level accounting, surface level finance, surface level marketing, and it was mostly serious i 'm not even lying it was mostly like making powerPoint presentations
0: and you know pretending to be a businessman well that 's what <laughs> masters of business administration right it 's really for people who want to go into the corporate machine and become. Like you said, middle-level managers and – And not lawyers. It's for management. It's It's for for managing beans, bean counters. (laughs) Right. It's It's not not entrepreneurship, which is probably why your school failed, right? Entrepreneurs don't go get an MBA. If any of them did, they left before they were finished and started whatever they were starting.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, at Babson actually does turn out a lot of entrepreneurs, but I think there it's just selection bias. I think people who, you know, they they are entrepreneurs already and they are so they're attracted to that school. Yeah. But I don't know that the school really does all that much to make them entrepreneurs. It's just that we we all graduated from Babson and we're like, well, I don't want to go get a job. Mm-hmm. I never wanted a job in the first place. But the truth is then, OK, if you don't want a job, then your MBA doesn't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> the MBA is a line on your resume. That's yeah. what it is. Yeah. And if you don't want to use that line on your resume, then I don't think you want an MBA. Mm-hmm. You certainly don't want to pay for it. Again, like don't
0: pay for business school. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Alrighty. Wait, am I reading this? I can't remember. Yeah. Okay. So do law schools weigh GPA for engineering degrees versus objectively less demanding degrees or does my low GPA just sink me? Well, unfortunately, your low GPA is going to suck even though you have an engineering degree. But engineering degrees are... I mean, the law schools take that into account. They take into account not only what degree you got but also what school you got your GPA at, right? So those things are going to... Subjectively push up and down your GPA, but the problem is your GPA is just still low. Two point seven is not that redeemable, even for an engineering degree. I think. Yeah,
1: yeah, the addendum will help, but they are going to certain schools are just not even going to look at your application in the first place, probably. Yeah, because your index is going to be too low, even if your LSAT is super. super, If your LSAT's super super high, then it could, you know, they could that could get you a look. And if they give you the look, like if you seriously score like 175 and your index then is pretty high,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: then they start looking at your application and they see the addendum and you point out the fact that you studied engineering and you've got a 175 and then they might think, Oh shit, like this guy's actually bright enough to do this. Yeah. Um, he goes on to here to say, I mean, he's got some
0: very reasonable targets. I think mm-hmm. I'm hoping to attend a school that is ranked between 80 and 100 with a scholarship and in the city that I plan on settling in, um, but that's a very narrow band.
1: <laughs> yeah. I would yeah. say the
0: difference between a school that's ranked 80 and a school that's ranked 50 is actually pretty marginal. So I would, I would shoot for higher ranked schools, uh, or just whatever fits your city and worry less about these rankings.
1: Yep. Uh, Apply broadly anyway, you know, I mean, you should be, you should be, uh, if there's one city you want to live in, you should basically apply to every school in, within normal, reasonable commuting distance of that city. Mm -hmm. Um, and hopefully you're not super stuck on one city and then you can expand your options a little bit further, but yeah, apply, apply broadly and, and get yourself the best possible options.
0: Yeah. Uh, test day story walked in. And the first thing I saw was a guy who brought thirty to thirty-six pencils, three boxes, sharpener, <laughs> great, and two highlighters, and a Rice Krispie treat. Okay, I also saw a girl studying flashcards up until the moment we had to go into the test. Yes, flashcards. The cards looked as if she ordered them from a big from Big LSAT, from Big LSAT. I like yeah, that. from Big LSAT. I like like that. it should be capitalized. Yeah, I like big that. LSAT. Yeah, me too. At the break, I was walking around the hall and I saw on a poster, there was a picture of the kid with red glasses, the exact background that you guys have for your podcast. I figured it was a sign. It's uh, I wonder stock photography. Yeah. I'm sure it was, the, yeah, sure it was the
1: exact same kid. Well, you got that photograph of it. You were the one who came
0: up with it. Yeah. I got it right? from like Shutterstock or something. Yeah. Um, I figured it was a sign. Yeah, it is a sign, literally. Nathan, <laughs> you included three green personalized pencils for my test preparation. What do your pencils say, Nathan?
1: They say Better Call Nathan on them, which is a Better Call Saul joke.
0: Okay. And
1: they have my phone number and stuff. And it's a super – it was funny because I ordered – when I got them – I mean, I I was always giving pencils to my classes and I was like, well, I'm going to stop buying these stupid normal yellow pencils and I'll have my Mm -hmm. own pencils. Why not? Right.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: And so I ordered custom pencils and I ordered like 3000 of them. And then like, it was the very next day that LSAC announced the the trial for the tablet version of the the test. And so I'm now trying desperately to give away um, thousands of these green pencils um, before the, before the test goes tablet. Um of course we know who's gonna win that race.
0: Yeah, you are gonna win. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs)
1: Because the tablet Elsa, even though they have been moving forward, um I think we're both gonna be shocked if that happens uh in twenty eighteen, I would say zero percent chance.
0: (sighs) I don't know that it's one percent chance. Zero on it, but um boy. I hope they get their act together. It is embarrassing. Me too. Me too. I'm in I'm I'm hoping they'll they'll figure it out, but it doesn't seem like it's going to happen anytime super soon. Yeah, they're just way too cautious. I mean, right. Even with the digital format, all they've done is taken the paper f- test and put it in in a digital format. Okay. You can do so much more once you go digital, but that's all they're doing at least so far.
1: It'll probably still take three weeks to get the scores back too. That's the thing. Yeah.
0: (laughs) All they've done is they're they're like, hey, we have this problem. Sometimes tests get shipped to us and they get lost. So we need them to be electronically delivered to us. If we can do that, we've solved all our problems. Well, oh, how about this, dude?
1: They're going to be actual, the way they've got it envisioned, you're going to use their tablets to take the test. Is that right? That's right. Mm Mm-hmm which means that they're going to have like tens of thousands of these tablets
0: floating around.
1: And then what are they going to do? Ship them back and forth to the LSAC world headquarters, or are they going to actually plug them into the network somewhere? Well, I think the data will be (laughs) sent to the laptop that they have.
0: That's during
1: the the test. I see. There's a laptop that the tablets are connected to.
0: Yeah. And then that of course is connected to the internet, yada, yada. But like, yeah, what are they going to do? Uh just leave those those tablets in your <laughs> office and you know, we'll be coming around in June. So I don't know, it's a lot of money to just be sort of floating out there and also uh tablets that are slowly becoming outdated, right? Is this going to become like government where the DMV has bought some cool looking thing, but now ten years later, you're like, yeah, "What right. is that? Is that I put it, my thumb on there and that will somehow open yeah. the locker? Have you seen this? Um, if you go to New York, you can use your thumbprint to rent a locker at the Statute of Liberty. Oh, cool! And, uh, and, 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 no, it's not cool. Um, Doesn't work. It, yeah, it it, it it's it, it looks like something out of a 1990s you know sci-fi movie that was trying to it's predict like Blade the future. Runner. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty funny. Anyways, I'm afraid that's what's going to happen with these tablets. I'm. I'm.
1: What if they just sell the applicants the tablet?
0: I. I guess how many people you just would- raise
1: the price? Raise the price by another hundred bucks or whatever, and now you get a souvenir when you take the <laughs> take you your- take the LSAT. You actually
0: get <laughs> you keep the tablet. You get uh, for the trial test. People got to keep the pen. So now. All <laughs> <laughs> oh, right,
1: I forgot about that. <laughs>
0: yeah 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 anyways um, well let's hope that they get their act together Uh, Thomas concludes therefore in regards to the pencils no more than three pencils should be brought with you to take the test flawed logic I know I couldn't resist final question will those green pencils work with the LSAT scantron (laughs) you better hope they do (laughs) if they are not then that would be a flaw just kidding no that would be a flaw Nathan do they work? that's
1: not just kidding Uh, Yes, they do work with the LSAT Scantron, or at least I have never heard that they don't, and I've been handing them out now for six months. I mean, it's a pencil. It's fine. Yeah, I don't think you need to worry about it.
0: Cool. Well, what should we do? Should we do more or are we done?
1: No, let's, let's uh, wrap it up there. Okay. Um, yeah, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, you can email the show, help at thinkinglsat.com. If you haven't done so already, please tell a friend and uh, go to iTunes and rate and review us. It really helps us out. Um, we rely on word of mouth to get uh, the podcast out there. And um, so, yeah, thank you very much for listening. And thank you for your help. Yes. Yeah.